You're listening to Good Shepherd Brentwood's Sermon Feed. Today's sermon was preached by Mother Natalie Van Kirk on the fifth Sunday in Lent, March 26th, 2023. I speak to you in the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, there's at least one person in the congregation this morning who's wondering why we read that story of the Annunciation here on the last Sunday of Lent, because it's not a typical Lenten reading, and because there's at least one other person who thinks we only read that story at Christmas. But yesterday was the Feast of the Annunciation. The Feast of the Annunciation is after Easter, which is primary, one of the seven most important feast days in the Christian calendar. And while I'm not going to be able to preach on these texts this morning, I wanted you to hear them, to remember that the feast day is part of the way we keep time. It's actually a much older feast day than Christmas. And if you count from March 25th to December 25th, you'll know how we got the date to Christmas. So, let us souls magnify the Lord and our spirits rejoice in God our Savior. And now we will return to the Nicene Creed. And our passage this morning, which will be on page 11 on the back of your bulletin, is we believe in Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, you know, when Father Fred and I sent out the invitations for our ordination so many years ago, the invitation to the ordination said nothing about being ordained into the Episcopal Church. Instead, the opening of the invitation reads something like this, God willing, the right reverend so-and-so, the 52nd Bishop of the Diocese of St. Swithins, will ordain, insert the priest of the name, into the sacred order of priests in Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The only time that the Episcopal Church might be referred to on that um, invitation is if it happens to be part of the formal name of the parish in which the ordination is to take place. Even the ordination liturgy doesn't say anything about the Episcopal Church, except one time. One time when the priest vows to solemnly engage and conform to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of the Episcopal Church. What that means is we'll use the prayer book and we'll listen to the bishop. But that's the only time in all of that service and in all of the vows, the reference to the service to the priest that the priest is called to give the church references the Episcopal Church. All of the rest of it is about Christ's church, about the family of God, the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. When a deacon or a priest or a bishop is ordained, The emphasis in the liturgy is on the call by God to serve Christ's people in Christ's one 
holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Now, the emphasis of the church as the gathering of Christ's people begins in our tradition with holy baptism. Look as hard as you can through that baptismal liturgy in your prayer book. It starts on page 301. And you will find no reference to being baptized into the Episcopal Church. We do not baptize people into the Episcopal Church. We baptize them into a life in Christ. And the vows we repeat are vows concerning loyalty to the teaching of the apostles and to the creed. The teaching of the apostles and the creed are the backbone of Christ's one holy Catholic, a holy, yes, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And that is the church in which we were all baptized and to which all of the baptized belong. It is the same with the sacrament of confirmation. Being confirmed is not about making you an Episcopalian. It is about taking full responsibility for the gifts the Holy Spirit has given you in your baptism and about receiving that Holy Spirit's gift of full incorporation into Christ's royal priesthood. Taking up that mantle and bearing that responsibility is part of what it means to be a member of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Nor do we ever speak of the Episcopal Church as our faith or our religion. Our faith, our religion, is Christian. Our tradition, which is about the way we pray and worship, is what we call Episcopalian or sometimes Anglican. The Anglican communion of which we are a part is the third largest tradition Christian tradition in the entire world. Only the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches have more adherence. But none of these traditions in and of itself is the entirety of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So then what are we talking about when we use that phrase? What, is it, what does it really mean? Well, first of all, this conception of the church is a mystery. Now, by mystery, I don't mean something confusing and unexplained and unexplainable. In the church, mystery has a very particular meaning. Mystery means a place where the spiritual and the material come together. And in that coming together, Christ's grace is made real and it is given to us. Let me repeat that. It's really important. Mystery is a place where the spiritual and the material come together. And in that joining together, Christ's grace is made real and it is given to us. This happens, for example, in holy baptism when the Holy Spirit hovers over the water and it washes us and gives us the grace of a redeemed and forgiven life and it empowers us to begin living, no matter how we, small we might be, into that reality. When the Spirit invades the elements of the bread and the wine at Holy Eucharist, making them for us the body and blood of Christ, 
grace is made real when we consume the body and the blood and each week are healed a little bit more and each week transformed a little bit more into someone more like Christ. We become what we eat through grace. So how is the church a mystery? The material part of the church that's going to come together with the spiritual, that's all of us. Every baptized Christian brought together into the body of Christ. The thing about the church is we don't all agree about everything. We're not all the same, and we're here because Christ has called us to this place, and he has called us to serve him in this place. But in living together, in learning to love one another, even those that we disagree with, and we may not even like very much, great grace is made available to us. We learn that none of us are perfect. We learn that, in fact, all of us are sinners. And nevertheless, we are given the power to love one another as we love ourselves. That is the grace of the church, learning to live that way. In Christ's eyes, your life and the lives of the people sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you are all, all infinitely valuable. All of you are loved. All of you bear the image of God. And all of you are called to reflect that image back on those you look upon. It's, it's like we're called to be mirrors for other people that shows them the image of God in themselves so that they can learn who they truly are. And they hold up that same mirror for us to see ourselves as we truly are. That is grace. And that is a mystery. And now, let me ask you, imagine, imagine what would happen in a church that understands that part of its responsibility is to hold up this mirror, to be filled with the Spirit. And then it begins to call on the Spirit to teach us and to guide us and to make us fully alive to this responsibility. Imagine the church that truly sees Christ as its head, as its authority for everything, and that it prays to be more faithful to that reality every day. That is a church that will be filled with peace and with grace and with power, a church that will make Christ real in the world. And that is Christ's church, Christ's one and holy church. Now, instead of embracing the mystery, too much of Christ's church is concerned with division and dislike and outright hatred. Second church leaves first church because somebody changed the color of the carpet. I mean, kid you not, it's happened. Church C leaves church A because the music was too traditional, or because the music wasn't traditional enough, or because the Bible was read too literally, or because it wasn't read literally enough, or because I just don't like those people, they don't vote the way I do. Not embracing the mystery and the difficulty of rubbing along together in disagreement as well as agreement leads to schism. And schism 
always breaks Christ's heart. It is not of the Spirit. It is a human problem. We are called to be one. And in a way, we still are a very fundamental and important way. What unites us? What unites us with Journey down the street and Holy Family up the hill and the, and the Church of Christ and the Presbyterians up on the corner? What unites us is the creed. Of all of the myriad denominations and traditions that make up the Church of Christ in our world, all of them have agreed that the Nicene Creed is the essential outline of the faith. Even the traditions and denominations that never say a creed on Sunday morning agree that if they would say a creed, it would be the Nicene Creed that they would say. And I've told you this before, the creed is the fence around a really, really large ranch. It defines very little. It simply states the necessities. Christ and the Spirit allow for a lot of variation and experiment within the fence. It's a big ranch. And it is when you eliminate or reject the necessities that you cross the border of the fence. Inside the fence, you belong to Christ. Outside of the fence, the call is to ask you to come back. So that is Christ's one. Holy. Holy means set apart for God's purposes. Now the members of the vestry will tell you that for the last three and a half years, I have really pushed them to think about and to talk about what the purpose of God is for this church. I'll give you a hint. It's not just to have church on Sunday morning. God has a particular purpose for this parish on this corner, in this town, in this state, in this country. And it is a matter of discernment and prayer for us to learn what that is and to live into it. Now, so far, the vestry's discernment has led them to the conviction that God's purpose for this church, for this outpost, is to build disciples for Jesus Christ and to teach them to love and serve others in his name. To build disciples for Jesus Christ and to teach them to love and serve others in his name. To teach them through worship, through formation, through community, and through action. That's God's purpose for Good Shepherd. But this is easier than if you think about larger churches and larger denominations and traditions. Think about it. Think what you know about the history and the newspaper stories about the church worldwide. How can they, how can they possibly be considered holy when there's so much that's not manifestly not holy about them? When they seem to deny Christ with everything that they do, let me put it this way. Yes, the institutions that human beings have established to carry out the mission of the church can be and are often corrupt. That is because human beings are broken and sinful and prey to temptation, and they make up 
the institution. We need to say something about corruption in the church. All church institutions are corrupt. None of them are pure. No one of them is particularly worse than any of the others. Do not be tempted to say, as I have heard many say in various denominations, oh, yeah, well, we have our problems, but we are not as bad as, insert the name of the denomination you particularly want to dislike there. The Catholics, maybe, or the Baptists, or the Evangelicals, or the Methodists. There is no denomination that I know anything about that does not have its share of sexual and financial scandals, that does not have a clergy that leads their people away from Christ, that does not get consumed itself by politics and power, both internally and externally, and that doesn't try and cover it up and conceal it and avoid dealing with it in ways that get other people hurt. Every single one, no exceptions. The institutional churches are human constructs, and even people who have given their lives to Christ can and do fail. And if you're looking for a perfect church, first hear Christ. Be ye perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you are perfect, your church stands a chance. What greater success could the evil one have possibly had than to tempt the leader of a church to sin and then tempt other leaders of the church to cover it up to protect the church? What better way could there be to convince people that Christians are nothing but hypocrites and turn away from them from the gospel and Christ? And yet in every single corner of these, these denominations and traditions, there is cause for us not to despair. There are faithful people in them wanting nothing more than to follow Christ. But they in Christ can be made invisible by scandal. St. Augustine, 1700 years ago, tried to explain that the unholiness of the institutional church in the, in the temporal space in the world was countered by the church triumphant in the presence of God. His church was a church of those who were elect, who had already been chosen to be saved, and who had been faithful and were found in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't believe that God is going to draw quite such a bright, hard line and say that only those who were previously chosen to be in his presence could be in his presence. I think we have to live into that. But I know this, there will come a time when each of us is shown how our lives have impacted others. For those in the body of Christ, and especially for the shepherds who have soiled it with corruption and caused the faithful to lose their faith, it will be a hellish vision. Christ's one Christ's holy, and now Catholic. The other night in the confirmation class when I said Catholic, and it was big C Catholic, I saw some people flinch. 
not talking about being part of the Roman Catholic Church. But Catholic, big C Catholic means universal. When Christ met with the, uh, the apostles on the mountain in Galilee, he told them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them in the, the, all that Christ had taught the apostles themselves. There are now Christians in every nation of the world, even in those states which persecute them and, and sanction their murders. That makes the church or the collection of churches the one Catholic church. It is truly, in our world, universal. It also makes those far-flung Christian brothers and, and sisters our brothers and sisters, to be loved by us just as Christ loves them. The average member of the Anglican Communion, for example, is African, is male, and about 34 years old. Not very much like Brentwood. But by virtue of our baptisms, we are brothers and sisters, and we are our brothers and sisters' keepers, and we have an obligation to serve them and to protect them. If we do not recognize that interrelatedness, then the church ceases to be Catholic and it becomes nothing more than a local club. Christ, one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Apostolic has two meanings. One is that the church holds to the teachings of the apostles as transmitted through the scriptures and the traditions of the church. In an Episcopal system like ours, that, that means a church where the bishops have a teaching authority in their diocese and priests are extensions of that bishop's ministry. It falls to the bishop to help us hold on to the teachings of the apostles. Why is that so important? Well, because if we start making the faith up as we go along, we pick a bit here and a bit here and that little shiny piece up there that we really like and we put it all together, how will we ever know if we speak the truth about Christ, about forgiveness, about God, about anything? To be apostolic is to teach the truth about Christ. The second meaning of apostolic has to do with the ministry of the church, both local and in a broader context. Christ and St. Paul are pretty specific about the instructions they give to Christians to care for the poor and the outcast, the imprisoned, the sick, to feed the hungry, and about preaching and teaching the gospel. The church is to keep her ministry focused on these apostolic ministries so that it can make Christ real in the world and those who have not yet come to belief can believe in him. We all belong to Christ's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Good Shepherd's purpose is to help you live into that truth and to make it a reality. Let us all pray that the Holy Spirit will pour down on us and give us the grace and the power and the strength to be a people where the truth of Christ's church can be seen in everything that we do.
Thanks for listening. If you're interested in hearing our sermons in real time, you can check us out at our website, www.goodshepherdbrentwood.org, or attend online during our 1015 Sunday live stream on YouTube. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Good Shepherd Brentwood. If you have any questions or comments, or maybe you'd like to meet with one of our clergy, you can email us at office at goodshepherdbrentwood.org. Or if you're interested in visiting in person or have questions about our programs and services, you can text 615-637-3738, where you'll be contacted by our staff. We'd love to meet you.